You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to Galatians. Uh, it's uh, So Romans, it's the New Testament, Romans. Uh, you'll see two letters to Corinthians, and then you'll find Galatians. Uh, we started a series there last week. My name is Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And uh, we're walking through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Paul, we looked at last week, Paul's hopping mad because he planted these churches in Galatia. He left after preaching the gospel. P- people got saved. The church is planted. He left, and then there were some false teachers that came in behind Paul, and they're undoing the things that Paul had done. They're teaching a different gospel. um, They've come in, they're undermining Paul, and they're changing his message. And so he's ticked off about it, and he's writing that way. We said last week he's writing, he's like an erupting volcano, and it should be read that way. And so we're going to get back into Galatians today, chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 6. But before we do, I want to tell you, about one of the uh, uh, great, um, tragic American heresies uh, of the modern day. Um, So April the 23rd of 1985, one of America's most dangerous heresies was born. New Coke. Um, Am I right, Scott? Yeah. Yeah. After World War II, uh, Pepsi had begun to gain ground steadily, and in the 80s, uh, the market began to be diluted with all kinds of things. So, so uh, diet, diet drinks and, and non-cola drinks began to flood the market, and, and Coca-Cola had a brand new CEO, and he had a new vision Uh, and newfangled ideas, and in his very first meeting with his employees, he announced this, that there would be no sacred cows in how the company did its business, including how it formulated its drinks. This led to what he called innovation, and it eventually led to the launch of New Coke, which at the launch in New York, he described its flavor this way, bolder, rounder and more harmonious. Don't know what rounder means, but that's what he said. But here's the problem. Coca-Cola is a drink that had long been marketed as the real thing. Constant and unchanging, but now it had been changed. And no amount of marketing, advertising, or taste testing was going to make that okay. Over 40,000 calls and letters were received by the company. The company hotline, 1-800-GET-COKE, received over 1,500 calls a day. They finally hired a psychiatrist uh, to to begin answering some of the calls. He met with the executives and told them that the people on the other line sounded as though they were discussing the death of a family member. The Chicago Tribune columnist, Bob Green, he wrote, uh, he began to write a series of articles that began to just ridicule Coke, 
for the decisions that they made. Talk show hosts, comedians, they all mocked the switch. In fact, on April the 23rd, after the announcement, Pepsi-Cola gave all their employees the day off, and they announced it this way. By uh, today's actions, Coke has admitted that they're not the real thing. There was a guy in Seattle named Gabe Mullins. He was retired. He then started a public relations firm with $120,000 of, of borrowed money, formed the organization called Old Cola Drinkers of America. He lobbied Coca-Cola to introduce the old formula or to sell it to somebody else. He eventually um, received 60,000 phone calls. He turned those into petitions. He filed a class action lawsuit against the company that then was thrown out uh, by a judge who said he preferred the taste of Pepsi. I'm not making this up. The cola heresy lasted 77 days before Coca-Cola reintroduced the old formula, Coca-Cola Classic. They finally discontinued for good New Coke in 2002. So Coca-Cola executives announced the return of the original formula during the afternoon of July 11th, less than three months after the New Coke was introduced. ABC News' Peter Jennings interrupted General Hospital to share the news with viewers. And on the, U, on the uh, floor of the U.S. Senate, David Pryor called the reintroduction a meaningful moment in U.S. history. And that is over sugar water. That's how important something that claims to be the real thing was. In 1985. So take that and go exponential in 2,000 years ago. And Paul's writing to Galatians, and what he's going to say to the Galatians, to the churches in Galatia, is what I'm writing to you about is the gospel, the only gospel, the real thing. I'm writing to you about this one gospel that you have seemingly abandoned, and I can't believe it. You've abandoned it for this thing you're calling another gospel, but there really is no such thing as another gospel because there is only one God. There can be only one gospel, and I don't care what you call it. If you add to it or you take away from it, it ceases to be the gospel. And Paul is livid. And he has one string on his guitar for six chapters, and every verse, he's strumming it. Because he wants to make sure that they know. with pinpoint clarity what the gospel is and what it isn't. A couple of quotes about Galatians. Merrill Tenney, an old uh, scholar, said it this way, if not for Galatians, Christianity might have ended up another Jewish sect. It's a strong statement. 
Jay Gresham Machen offers this. He, he, this is a, a summary of, of what we'll read here in just a second. He says this. This is what Paul's saying, essentially. You're falling away from the gospel, and I'm writing to stop you. We might say Paul's message is this. God's love for you is determined not by what you do, but rather what Jesus has done for you. So read with me. I'm going to read Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to pick up in verse 6. We'll read to verse 10, and then we'll look at the rest of the chapter next week. Here's what he says. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who, are, who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again, if anyone's preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You know, he says here, Paul, he's, he's writing, he says, listen, I'm astonished. You, you're so quickly deserting. And then he says, him who called you in the grace of Christ. He speaks of this calling. He, he, he says, listen, you were called. He, he, knows that they're, listen, he knows they're believers. You were called. That's what, in essence, it means to be a believer. It means that you were called by God. The calling of the Christian. To be a Christian means that God called you in the grace of Christ. And this is very personal for Paul. If you remember last week in verse 1, he says about himself, Paul, he says, I'm an apostle through Jesus Christ and God the Father. In verse 12, we'll look next week, he says he, he speaks of the revelation that he had of Jesus. In verse 15, he'll say, I was, I was set apart before I was born. I was set apart, not because of anything that I had done or anything that I had achieved, I was, before I was born, I was set apart. And in Philippians chapter 3, he'll say about himself, look, I, I had all these credentials in my former life in Judaism. I had accomplished all of these things. I, I had quite a resume, and as I think about it now in relation to what I have in Christ, all that's rubbish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he talks about himself. He, he says, you know, I was... I think about it, I was untimely born, meaning I, I was late to Christianity. I missed out. I missed out on so much. I missed out on the ministry of Jesus before the resurrection. I came too late. I'm so glad I'm here now. In Romans chapter 7, what Paul will say about himself, he, he describes the ongoing struggle that he has in this life as a believer. The struggle he has with the old man in him, the, the sin that remains because the flesh remains. Even though he's a new creation, the, the old creation's not, not yet gone. 
He, he's already, but he's not yet. Well, what he wants to do, he, he doesn't do. What, what he doesn't want to do, those are the things he ends up doing. He feels the tension. He feels the burden of sin. He feels the need for grace in his life every day. He knows that his hope in this life is not that the old man, that the old Paul would get better, a little better every day. He knows that the old man needs to die. His hope is in the new creation being formed by the Spirit of God and by the power of God's Word, and that he's growing in his understanding of God's grace, that he's growing in his understanding of Jesus' love. And, and in like he prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1 and in chapter 3, that, that the eyes of his heart would be enlightened, that, that he would be strengthened with, with power through his Spirit in his inner being so that Christ may dwell in his heart through faith. So that he, being rooted and grounded in love, would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that he may be filled with the fullness of God being transformed more and more and more into the likeness of Christ. That's his hope. He knows his hope is not in the law. And so he says to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you would abandon the gospel. For the law? Well, what about the law? Is the law bad? Well, here's what Paul says about the law in Romans. In Romans chapter 7, here's what Paul says about the law. So I want to be real clear about this. In Romans chapter 7, Paul will say about the law that it's holy and that it's good. And that he'd, he'd spend his whole life pursuing it. In fact, Paul will even tell his story or Luke will tell his story for him in, in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9. Paul's caught in the, Paul's called while he's caught in the act. He's headed to Damascus, pursuing the law, out to kill Christians. And Jesus catches him in the act. And he knows what it means to be called because his identity is not determined by what he did or what he did not do. But rather, it is exclusively determined by what God has done through his Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, what Paul will say is, he even made me the very thing I was unworthy to be. I am loved by him. So Christianity for Paul to be called by God, it goes like this. I'm unworthy, but, and then this is the language of grace. It's the contradiction between who you are and what you deserve with who you've become and what you've received. 
I'm unworthy, but by grace, I am. That's what it means to be called by God. So Paul says, you're deserting. I can't believe you're deserting God. That's the next thing to notice. See, Paul says that you're deserting. When you're deserting this, when you're leaving the gospel, you're not turning to a different gospel. You're not deserting a message. You're deserting him. You're deserting a person. They're deserting God himself, the one who called them into the grace of God. To turn from the gospel is to turn from God himself. The word astonish is not just for emphasis, Paul really can't believe it. I can't believe, I mean, I've read about things like that before. I mean, I've read about it, but I I can't believe I'm seeing it with my own eyes. I mean, I can't believe it. And the way Paul writes it, he's writing it, he's writing it like he's remembering about when he read it, like in Exodus chapter 32, when The Israelites, they've just been saved by God. They've just been redeemed from 400 years of slavery. They've just crossed safely across the sea, and they've watched the Egyptian enemies perish at the hands of God. And now Moses, he's called up to the top of Mount Sinai by their God, and they're waiting to hear what God's word is. And so you'd think, you'd think after all they'd seen, and they could wait a little while to hear from Moses... To report about what God said, and but they don't. The most astonishing thing happens. Exodus 32, 8 says it this way. They turned aside quickly from what the Lord said. So they took up all their gold, and before long they'd made a big fire. They fashioned, they threw all the gold in it. They, they, they fashioned a golden calf. They had a worship service. Aaron's the high priest of the first church of the golden calf. And you're reading Exodus 32, and you think, what in the world am I reading? And then Moses comes off the mountain, and he's like, Aaron, what are you doing? And Aaron says, I don't know, the, the golden calf just leaped out of the fire. Paul says, I can't, I can't believe it. Why would you turn to that? I mean, to the law, the, the, the Judaizers came in and said, oh, look, Paul didn't tell you everything. You've got to have the law and you've got to have circumcision and the festivals and all of this stuff. In other words, the law and the circumcision, the Galatians were believing from the false teachers that those things would make them righteous. It's like they were the golden calves. The works we do for the purpose of. Think about this. The works we do for the purpose of earning the right to be a Christian. The the works we do for the purpose of standing out amongst others. The, The works we do for making ourselves feel less guilty about the sin that makes it necessary for our salvation. 
or, or the works we do for the purpose of cleaning ourselves up as much as we can before we come to Christ. It's kind of like when you book the, the maid to come to your house and then you spend all night cleaning before she comes because you don't want her to know how really dirty you are. Oh, I'd be so embarrassed if she knew how really dirty how really dirty we are. That makes no sense. See, they're golden calves. And somehow in the process, they had come to believe that they weren't all that bad. That their badness wasn't all that bad, and that their goodness was somehow good enough. But I mean, you can go back to the Old Testament, Isaiah 64, verse 6. Our righteous deeds, the good stuff we do. You know what, you know what the Bible says about that? They're filthy rags. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, no one's righteous. Not one. No one. You see, it's an insidious message. It's one that appeals to you, it appeals to me. It's, it's the false gospel that every one of us is susceptible to and one that we so quickly turn to because it's the one that so quickly jumps out of the fire of our heart and we find ourselves deserting Jesus and warming ourselves at the fires of the false gospel. It's the false gospel that says there's a righteousness in you and it just needs to be unleashed. There's a righteousness in you, and it just needs to be unlocked. There's a righteousness in you, and it just needs to be set free. Oh, there's a good in you, and it just needs to come out. And the false gospel will offer you two things. It will offer you the key to unlock it, and the tools to nurture it. And if you don't believe it, you can leave here today, you can drive to a bookstore, and you can find shelves full of those books that offer you the key to unlock it and the tools to nurture it so that you can be the best you that you can be. And Paul is livid about it. Let me illustrate it this way. Let, let me illustrate exactly what the point is here in Galatians. A mock interview. You got Paul, you got the Judaizers. Say, Paul, do you believe Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? Paul says, yes. Judaizers, do you believe Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament? Judaizers say, yes. Paul, do you believe that a man comes to the knowledge of God through the saving work of Jesus on the cross? Yes. Judaizers, do you believe that a man comes to the knowledge of God through the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross? The Judaizer says, yes, I do. Paul, do you believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? Paul says, yes, I do. Judaizer, do you believe in the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus? The Judaizer says, yes, I do. Paul, 
How do we receive the benefit of Christ's work? How do we receive the benefit of what Christ has done? Paul would say we receive it by faith. For the Judaizer, how do we receive the benefit of what Christ has done? The Judaizer would say we receive it through faith and circumcision and the law. So it might seem like a small difference, but the difference is between heaven and hell according to Paul. Because the difference is between grace and law. It's the difference between salvation offered by grace and salvation that comes through works. And that's why Paul is so stirred up. The issue between the two is not the work of Christ. The issue between the two comes down to that work that becomes ours. In other words, here's what John Stott says about it. He says, you let Moses finish what Christ has begun, or rather, you yourself finish by your obedience to the law of what Christ has begun. You add your works to the work of Christ. You must finish Christ's unfinished work. That's what has Paul so stirred up. So let me go back to this issue of the law. Because when you talk this way, people will inevitably say, well, wait a minute. I get all this, but, but, but hang on for a second. You have me a little off balance. If I'm tracking with you, what you're saying is this grace thing. That Jesus does it all, and I do nothing. That I'm saved by grace. That when God sees me, he sees what Jesus has done, not what I've done. That God loves me, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That I'm loved based upon the work of Jesus, his love for Jesus, not because of me. That it's not my obedience or disobedience... That my standing never changes because Jesus' standing never changes. To which I would say, you're catching on. That's grace. But then somebody will inevitably say, well, wait a minute then. It sounds like what you're saying is, I can do whatever I want. Man. Man. That sounds like a great deal. Man, if it doesn't matter what I do, then I can do whatever I want. But I'll just sin because it doesn't matter. Christ has done all the obedient stuff. I can be as disobedient as I want, and it doesn't matter. That's grace. Which I would say two things. One, okay, well, you've heard grace rightly, 
because when Paul preached it, that is the accusation they made against Paul. It's called antinomianism. They said, Paul, that's what you're saying. So if you say that, I say, well, I must be doing it right because that's what they said against Paul. Secondly, though, I would say, you absolutely do not understand grace at all. Because you do not understand what it means to be loved. Because if you understood what it meant to be that deeply loved, your response would be to love. It wouldn't be disobedience. It would be awe and wonder and love. Let, let, let me say it this way. What about the law then? Let me go back to that. In Romans 7, Paul will say, the law, it's holy. The law is good. He doesn't, I mean, the law, the law, it was given by God. It's holy and it's good. The law can't save you. Here's why. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, here's, here's what the law does. The law doesn't make people innocent. The law renders people guilty. You want to live by the law? That's great. It will never make you innocent. You know what it will do? Renders you guilty. In Romans 4, verse 15, the law brings wrath. In Romans 5, verse 20, the law was introduced to increase the sin. The law came to show us just how sinful we really are. Like when I took Maggie, we went to visit the A&M campus. Don't, please don't do that. But we're at A&M, and I see the uh, sign, on, you know, it says, don't walk on the grass. That's the law. You know what it makes me want to do? Walk on the grass. Where the law comes, the sin increases. Romans 7. Sin deceived me, he said, and then sin killed me. The law, he, he describes the law like it was the murder weapon in the hands of sin. Well, the law is holy and it's good but it won't save you. You will not survive your own salvation. You will not. That's why Paul says, I can't believe you would abandon the gospel of Christ. So the Judaizers, he says in verse 7, they are distorting the gospel. They want to distort the gospel of Christ. The word distort means to change, to alter. It comes from a word that means to turn over, to twist around, to make backwards. 
Here's what they were doing. They were taking the gospel and they were flipping it around. So to put it in terms that will help make sense of that for us, we talk about it in the church like this. We talk about justification and sanctification. The way that the New Testament speaks about it, so let's take Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10 for a second. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is a gift of God so that nobody boasts. And then in 10, so this is 2, 8, and 9, you're saved by grace through faith. You did nothing. And then in 10, but you were saved to good works that were prepared for you beforehand. Justification, then sanctification. That's the order of the gospel. You're justified, the effect is sanctification. You're justified through grace because of what Jesus has done. You're totally accepted. Then fear is gone, joys come, you have a new heart, you have new desires, you have the power of the Spirit of God to be what God wants you to be. So justification leads to sanctification. If you distort the gospel, then you operate as though sanctification leads to justification. You turn it over. You twist it around. You say your justification's based on your sanctification. One writer says that he describes it this way. You draw your assurance of acceptance with God based on your sincerity. Your recent religious performance, your relative frequency of your conscious obedience or willful disobedience. Christians who are no longer sure God loves and accepts them in Jesus apart from their spiritual achievements are subconsciously insecure persons, much less secure than non-Christians. They have too much light to rest easily under the constant barrage they receive from their Christian environments about the holiness of God and the righteousness they're supposed to have. Their insecurity shows itself in pride, a fierce defensive assertion of their own righteousness and defensive criticism of others. They cling desperately to legal, pharisaical righteousness, but envy, jealousy, and other branches on the tree of sin grow out of their fundamental insecurity. It's important to remember that the Bible, the focus of the Bible is not the work of the redeemed, but the work of the Redeemer. When the Christian faith becomes defined by who we are and what we do, and not by who Christ is and what he did, we miss the gospel, and ironically, you know what happens? We become more disobedient. Tim Keller, he says, but the Bible's fundamentally not fundamentally about us, it's fundamentally about Jesus. The Bible's purpose is not so much to show you how to live a good life. The Bible's purpose is to consistently and constantly show you how God's grace breaks into your life against your will and saves you from sin and brokenness. Otherwise, you would never have been able to overcome. So let me say it two more ways and then we'll close, okay? 
It is not a matter of whether obedience to God's law is important, either to us or to God. Of course it is. The question is, where does the power to obey God's command comes from? Does it come from the gospel, what God's done for us? Or does it come from the law, what you must do? So another way to say it is, does the power come from God or does it come from you? That, that's the way to say it. The law has no power to change us. However, to say that the law has no power to change us doesn't reduce its ongoing role in the life of a Christian. We just have to understand the precise role it plays today. The law now serves us by showing us how to love God and to love others. And when we fail to keep it, the gospel brings us comfort by reminding us that God's infinite approval doesn't depend on us keeping the law, but on Christ having kept the law and keeps the law on our behalf. And guess what? That makes us want to do it more. Spurgeon wrote it this way. He said, when I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I find God is so good and kind and overflowing with compassion, I smoke my breast to think I could have ever rebelled against the one who loved me so. You see, the common denominator in heaven, in the presence of the Lord, will be this. Everyone will know this. Everyone will know that they do not deserve to be there. Everyone will know they were saved by grace. The last thing I'll say about this. Jay Gresham Machen says this. It's helpful to us. A low view of the law always produces legalism. It's counterintuitive. Listen. A low view of the law always produces legalism. A high view of the law makes a person seek after grace. The reason this seems so counterintuitive is because most people think that those who talk a lot about grace have a low view of God's law. Hence the regular charge of antinomianism. Others think that those with the high view of the law are the legalists. But in fact... It is the low view of the law that produces legalism since a low view of the law causes us to conclude that we can do it. The bar is low enough for us to jump over. A low view of the law makes us think that the standards are attainable, the, the goals reachable, the demands are doable. This means, contrary to what some Christians would have you believe, the biggest problem facing the church today is not cheap grace, but cheap law. The idea that God accepts anything less than the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And that's what has Paul so worked up. Galatians, there is no different gospel. You were called by God into the grace of Christ because it is the perfect standard of Jesus. Only that saves you. Nothing you could ever do. 
Consider what the gospel says. It does not tell us what we have to do to please God. Instead, it announces that God is already pleased with us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. God is as pleased with us as he is with his own son. It liberates us from seeking approval of others. At the same time, it frees us from striving for God's favor. As believers, we already have the tender affection of his eternal, eternal love. What more do you need? Nothing more. This is why it is the only true gospel. It is the only real thing. It is the only amazing good news. Grace is not looking for good men and women who it may approve. Grace is looking for the condemned, the guilty, the speechless, the helpless who it may save, sanctify, and glorify. Is that you this morning? Have you come to the place of saying, I have nothing. I need a Savior. Trust Jesus. That's faith. You would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that we uh, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you that you've saved us this completely. Christ has done it all. Father, help our minds and our hearts to be clear about that. Father, grant us the faith to believe it. To appropriate your grace. Father, for those this morning that have never done that, I pray you would grant them faith to believe upon your Son, Jesus, maybe for the first time this morning, to recognize their helplessness, Father, their utter sinfulness, that there's nothing they can do to save themselves and that they need a Savior. Nothing they can do to clean themselves, tidy themselves up. That they stand condemned before you in need of grace and that, Father, in that moment would they trust your Son, Jesus, as their Savior. And know in that moment what it is to be saved. Completely. Father, that's the good news of the gospel right there.
pray you'd help us to catch hold of that afresh again this morning. We need it every day, Father. We ask this the only way we can in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.